Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand in your life that made an impact on you? Quaker Oats. My dad worked at Quaker Oats. (laughs) Yeah. Your dad worked there. He did. And so I think I had exposure to a brand and what it meant from a very early age. And they did this epic picnic every summer. And there are pictures of me, like age two, kind of um, looking very smitten with uh, King Vitamin, Uh, you know. (laughs) So. Do you still eat Quaker Oats? I do. Yes. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Jill Kress. Jill was the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for National Geographic Partners, and she has just started with PayPal. We recorded this session just as she was beginning her new role at PayPal. In this episode, we talk about Jill's education at Indiana, the impact of her grandfather, who is an immigrant. We talked about working at MasterCard for 23 years, and we talked about National Geographic, who started 131 years ago with a purpose to help open people's eyes to the planet and the importance of balance and sustainability, which are more relevant now than ever. This is my conversation with Jill Kress. Jill, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I am so happy you're here. You've worked on so many interesting brands, and we're going to try to get into all of that today. Thanks for having me. So I want to come out of the blocks really fast, and I want you to react to three quotes or statements that I say, and I want you to think about what these statements mean to you. So the first one is, we believe that when people understand the world better, they care more deeply about it. Now, that's the first thing you see when you go to National Geographic's website, which you know. So talk about that. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question. That was the fruits of a lot of labor around distilling a meaningful role for National Geographic. I joined, and one of the first things that we established was that we had a big opportunity to leverage the reverence that we had for that brand to become more relevant with the consumer audience that we were trying to attract. And so we had to distill down what National Geographic stood for. And as you well know, consumers today choose brands that are making a difference in the world. So we wanted to find a more active role for National Geographic. We went back to the start and looked at what the founders some 130-plus years ago sought for what they were creating. It was always a community-based brand, and it was around a mission to keep the planet in balance. And so that was kind of the updated version of what we thought was a pretty strong, meaningful role for National So when you went down back to the founders, what sort of, how'd you do that? What, did you read what they wrote? Did you look at what they... Yeah. Uh, Speeches? How how did you unpack that? Well, the good news about working at a place like National Geographic is they have an incredible archive. They actually have a photo archive that is um, truly mind-blowing. But yes, we were able to look at the first journal, the first published National Geographic. 
We did partner with an agency who helped us really work through a brand strategy and an articulation of that. But we discovered all sorts of interesting things. It was founded by a group of socialites. They were studying bugs and the impact that uh, bugs and the environment were having. What was their relationship? So, so it they started with bugs. Started with bugs. About how relevant today, uh, right? Exactly. Um, and then, you know, one of the interesting things that I think anyone who admires the brand will appreciate is that there was a moment in time in the early 1900s when Alexander Graham Bell was running the place and commercial photography came into being. And it had always been a scientific journal. And they decided to augment that with photos. And it was a really seminal moment for National Geographic. Several members of the board resigned, saying that they had bastardized this scientific journal. But what they really did was set this amazing path forward for, for National Geographic to become the world's leading visual storyteller. So photographs came a few decades after the founding. Yeah, about a decade. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And for such a long time, I think, you know, as a child, I can remember the stacks of yellow magazines being in my dad's office. And you weren't allowed to look at them, you know, without him because you didn't want, you didn't want them destroyed. But it really brought people, the world, and everything in it long before the internet and, and Instagram. And I think that's what made them relevant for a very long time. So next uh, statement or quote, audiences don't want to connect with a brand, but with the people who represent the values of that brand. And of course, you said that. Yeah. So talk to me about that statement. I think that people follow people. I was at MasterCard when the whole branded content ambition started to take off and we were all so inspired by what Coke published with Liquid, and we all thought this is going to be an amazing moment for brands to garner affection and, and followership through content. But at the end of the day, people follow people. And one of the things that, as we did that brand strategy work, and we looked at what was happening and what was working with National Geographic, it was this sense of real community. National Geographic was the most followed brand on Instagram when I joined. While I was there, it achieved 100 million followers, which was pretty amazing. And it's one of the brands that still takes a very authentic approach to that. You know, I think, again, in its non-commercial ambition as a not-for-profit, National Geographic saw Instagram and said, this is a photography platform. Who better than us to delight an audience with the world's best photographers? So they, they turned the keys to that account over to some of the world's best photographers and I think that really demonstrates the power of that statement. You know, we were able to achieve a lot of um, affinity from our audience by making it about the people that represent National Geographic. You also opened the Instagram platform to other people, right? Not just world-class photographers. Yeah, we had a, a, an online community called Your Shot where aspiring photographers could post and could connect with some of our best photographers to, to seek tips. and. It was a really great way to celebrate the power of that extended community because every month in the National Geographic print publication and across other digital platforms, one of those photography submissions is is printed. And what you know, what an amazing um, celebration of of the power of the the community then to actually co-create with them. So, how big is that community? Just roughly, you know, uh, I last that that I'm aware, it was about a million wow. users. Yeah. That's so. That's. I mean, the lesson behind that is open your brand up to people who care about it and and have yeah. them contribute to it. You know, we uh, on, a, on a separate podcast we talked to Adam Petrick, who's the CMO of Puma. Yeah, he had the same point. 
you know, open the brand up to people who care about it. Let them contribute. Let them add to it. You know, influencers as well as people who just love the brand. Yeah. I think co-creation and story making with our audiences is a really powerful opportunity. For every brand. Yeah, absolutely. Especially you, but I think for every brand. Okay, last statement. It's all about getting the balance of content, purpose, and action right. Yeah. You also said that. So tell me a bit about that and what that statement means to you. I joined National Geographic at a really exciting moment. The The content strategy had been revitalized and re-envisioned, particularly in the television world, as they sought to compete with uh, streaming platforms and be ready for this moment that inevitably came, which is now to have this moment to be a part of Disney+. Plus. And so they were looking to create content that was worth paying for. Uh, I think, you know, consumers are uh, certainly not at a loss for great content. And so we were seeking to create both incredible video and, and written content. But the other thing that we did was we really looked at the audience that we wanted to attract. And that was some of the foundational marketing work that I was really excited to lead and to rally the organization around. And it was about distilling the difference between an existing user, someone who was paying us for a subscription, to the magazine or watching the cable channel, to the audience we wanted to attract. And so we did a lot of work on defining the aspirational target. And as you can appreciate, the aspirational target wants to know what they can do. It's not enough to just serve them the content or to provide factual information about what's happening around the science of climate change. Um, they want to take action. And so, so how is the aspirational target different from your current heavy user? Or your heavy user yeah. at the time. So, you know, National Geographic is a 130-year-old brand. As you can imagine, the uh, average active user is uh, older than where we wanted the brand to be so that we could have long-term success. And so what we did was it was really a, you know, you've, you've done this kind of work doing segmentation. We worked with a great agency and really looked at what the brand stood for. So things like the power of curiosity understanding facts, feeling like you are a, a global citizen and connected to something beyond your immediate world, the power of travel to help you understand the world. Uh, and we had sort of these six attributes and we screened for those. And we, we defined this audience, which was more millennial in their mindset, but it wasn't a millennial life stage. And it was uh, a, a consumer who we defined as the aspiring explorer, someone who believed in the power of curiosity travel, having, you know, access to both um, knowledge, uh, scientific and historical, to form their opinions and to connect with, with like-minded community members, people who were like them, and they wanted to know what they could do to make the world or to leave the world a better place than, than the one that they entered. That's a fabulous purpose. Uh, but, you know, I want to ask you a question about that because so many brands struggle with this. Yeah, yeah. So as you're trying to pivot the brand mm -hmm. to appeal to the as aspiring explorer, um, which is different mindset, probably some different demographics too from your current active user. How did you make sure that both of them were with you? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, depending on the content that we published, you know, you, you could see the, the reaction, you know, something that was definitely, you know, pushing the envelope would attract that aspirational target and it may not resonate with our existing audience. And, you know, so we, we got it right a lot of times by being really true to what we stood for, which was leaning into scientific and historical accuracy. Um, and it was about actually taking risks and understanding that, you know, it's the same thing that we deal with as, as brand people who are 
looking to shepherd these brands for the long term. And so it, it led to, con- you know, real discussions about short-term versus long-term trade-offs and the power of building an audience for the long-term. Is there any brand in the world more trusted than Nat Geo? It is. It is the most trusted brand in media right next to Disney. Uh, So it was interesting as we were doing that work that Disney would ultimately become the parent company. But yeah, it is. uh, It has incredible levels of of trust and, you know, high rates, incredibly high on quality and integrity. Um, So there was a lot to, to work with to did Nat Geo ever make a mistake on trust? I mean, they seem to have been pretty steady, but did they ever make a mistake and recover from it? Not that I can remember. No, which is you know, pretty unusual. Yeah, actually. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, you know there was a uh, over the last, I think, a year and a half, there was a, a photo that was was published with a an ill pol- a sick polar bear, and there were some interpretations around. Was that a result of of climate change that over over time they really came to terms with? And I think one of the great things is you know being true to your values and really owning that owning that. Um, and I think they did that in a really responsible way. But for the most part, I think they've stayed true to stay who they true. are. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and it's a great it's a great place to work because people are really passionate about the work of helping people um, keep the planet in balance. Well, we're going to get into that in a few minutes, but I want to, before we get too far into this podcast, I want to talk about you and go back and uh, and then we'll talk a bit about this unique business model of of National Geographic Partners. So you are a Midwesterner, right? Yes. Chicago for high school, Indiana Hoosiers for college, and then you went to MasterCard for 23 years and now three years at Nat Geo, and now you're starting up at PayPal. Yes. So you're getting a little bit back to your MasterCard kind of roots. So do you still see yourself as a Midwesterner? I do. Yeah, it's and it's been great. Over the last month, I've been back in Chicago a lot because my daughter started at Northwestern. And so- Congratulations. Thank you. So it's kind of like a going home for all of us. But yeah, I think I grew up in a very um, close-knit family. I am a real product of the American dream. My grandfathers were, one was a steel worker and one was a Chicago Transit Authority bus driver. They were both first generation um, Americans from Polish and Croatian roots. And so, you know, I I feel like Chicago is a real representation of that, of kids like me who sat around Sunday dining room tables with grandparents who sacrificed a lot um, so that we could do something really great in this world. And um, I, I still hold a lot of those lessons very, very dearly and what makes me ambitious and, and optimistic about what I can do uh, wherever I go and most imminently uh, at PayPal. Yeah. So your daughter's a wildcat versus a Hoosier. So yes. why did she make that decision? <laughs> well, that's a long story. She's actually, she started out at UCLA uh, she was there for a year. It was a bit too far, and then she decided to go to Northwestern. And I think the uh, it's interesting because there were some there were more similarities to being a Hoosier um, to that to being a Bruin than there are to I think being a Wildcat and, and being a Hoosier. So I felt like you know I thrived in a big state school. Uh, she went out to California very um, optimistic because she's kind of she's one of these they call them third culture kids. She's lived in a couple places. She did most of her primary school in Brussels, Belgium, and in London. And in my job at MasterCard, it was hard to pin me down. I could be in Brazil, and we'd be doing FaceTime to do homework. So we felt like distance and 
uh, you know, geography was was not limiting, but it was far, and the time change was was hard. Mm-hmm. And I think Northwestern felt right because it was a sense of going home, smaller community, and I think probably um, a more like minded community. She's a real student. She's studying an- cultural anthropology and oh, filmmaking, fantastic. and so she's in a great very place. National Geographic. Yes, right? yes, exactly. Well, it's funny. We'll talk about this offline, but my daughter started at Northwestern and then went to UCLA. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So we'll talk about this offline. That's so funny. So what did you study at Indiana? I studied marketing. Okay. I wanted to be an ad man, an ad what? woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, you switched and went on the client side. You went to MasterCard. Well, I actually, not because it's so long ago, it's yeah. hard to find. I was at a bank for two years. Okay. So I graduated in the previous recession. I very much wanted to work at a place like Procter & Gamble or you know, to be in the, the CPG space. And I was really close to an offer with one of the big CPG firms. And as you can appreciate, everything that was happening with uh, financial performance marketing is always the first thing to go. So those jobs were cut. And so I ended up going to work at a bank. And I was, it was a commercial management training program. So ultimately, that would have led me, led me into a career of commercial banking. But I am very curious I studied marketing, thinking that I would create some of the world's best best ads. And what I realized along my journey is that I'm actually much more of a consumer strategist, and I'm great at writing an incredible brief that agencies who uh, who partner with us can can then translate into really good creative. I'm not a creative at all, uh, but I thought that's what you did if you loved marketing. Uh, so, so what is it about you that writes a great brief? It's a big issue, right? It I've is worked a big with a lot issue. of agency clients in my life, in, including now. And the quality of briefs is pretty bad. So what what makes yeah. you good at that? I think it's this kind of relentless curiosity that I have for the consumer and um, really sort of understanding uh, the opportunity that you have to identify an unmet need. Unmet need. Un- Try that again. Unmet, unmet need. I'll help need. you with that. <laughs> unmet need. And I think, you know, just to tie it back to the question about my career, you know, I was at this bank and I saw that debit cards were starting to, you know, it was a nascent product. People were starting to talk to them and it was a small bank. And I went and said, you know, we should get into the debit card business. And that led me into a relationship with MasterCard. And I can remember thinking, wow, this is the best company in the whole world. I would do anything to to work there. And so I launched this debit card program with a really ambitious marketing campaign that was very consumer inspired. And MasterCard said, why don't you come and do this for us and help other banks around uh, the Midwest? We were organized like that at the time. Um, launched these debit card programs. And I thought I died and went to heaven. Well, you stayed there 23 years. I did. Right? And you had a remarkable run. I mean, just over the last 10 years, the market cap at MasterCard is up like 10x. Yeah. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So so I want you to talk about how you developed as a leader there. Sort of what was the pre-Jill like as a leader? And then as you went through that remarkable run at MasterCard at lots of different locations, how did you develop as a leader? What, how are you different? Yeah. What do you think, what, what, what happened to you to, in those, that time to define you as you are today? 
I would just start by saying I, I, I am still so full of gratitude for that experience. I was able to grow as a, as a human, as a person, as well as, as a leader when I was at MasterCard because they really cared deeply about development. It was four different companies, essentially. I joined when it was a not-for-profit. It became for-profit. And then we had the big run towards the IPO. And then we were living and thriving in this world as, as a high-tech company. And I think what, what I was able to do was uh, leverage my natural passion for consumer, for being curious, for being results-oriented, for being very optimistic around the things that mattered MasterCard. So I came in when Debit was really nascent and starting to grow. I was always fascinated by consumers and what drives loyalty and was doing a lot of work early on in the co-brand space. Mm -hmm. And that was something that MasterCard valued. We launched, and I was involved in launching some of the first co-brand programs that shifted significant market share versus their primary competition. And so as I was sort of leading into results and ambition, they were helping me with my leadership style. I was very, you know, I had to learn a lot to uh, slow down, to speed up because uh, I wanted to get things done and, and make things happen. They encouraged me to take risks and be okay with being uncomfortable. I moved to Europe. After 13 years at MasterCard, I joined the European uh, senior leadership team working for the president of MasterCard Europe. And on one hand, I look back and think I had all the confidence in the world. And my mentors and coaches were you know, sharing with me that this was going to be a great way to get me out of my comfort zone. And it certainly was. I had no idea what I was getting into. And so I think they, um, they gave me, it was a, it, I had platforms for opportunity to deliver results while I had a lot, it was a culture of very strong feedback, open, honest, and direct feedback always. And feedback is a gift. And so, you know, I was, you know, I was young and ambitious and I made a lot of mistakes. What I really appreciate, appreciate about my time as, at MasterCard were the people who told me to take pause and really learn from those, which um, I still take with me till today. What was the biggest uh, change or adjustment working in Europe versus the U.S. for you? Well, you know, I love so much about that. I really started to understand why diversity of thinking matters. I sat on a leadership team with uh, a group of people who came from all different places um, across Europe, you know, French, Italians. Um, the amazing gentleman that I worked for was a Catalonian, a uh, Russian woman. And so I learned a lot about listening and understanding how different perspectives can come together. There's also a lot of challenges that go with that. And so I, I had been at MasterCard 13 years. I thought I knew everything about the company. And it was being, it was like being in a new environment and managing um, lots of strong opinions and, and different, you know, lots of different contexts that sit around a table like that. Um, but it was an amazing experience. So who was your most influential mentor at MasterCard during your time there? Uh, I had so, you know, I am so thankful to so many people, but there was uh, a gentleman who recently retired. He ended up as the chairman, uh, Walt McNee. And Walt was president of the Americas for a while and had various different roles. And he was a big mentor and one of those people who really helped to call out my, my blind spots, but also give me an, an incredible sense of confidence around what was possible and being okay with being uncomfortable and, and embracing my ambition um, and optimism in a way that would serve the company well and not just serve me well. So what were your blind spots? Well, again, I think this moving fast, you know, and I think I'm really careful of that. 
even So you want to today. move really fast and I want to get things done. Kind of learn that sometimes it's better to reflect a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm an expressive thinker. And one of the things I learned through coaching at MasterCard was that as you grow and you become an executive, when you say things, people listen. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Funny about that. And so I really had to, you know, and I had a global job there and I would go to different markets. I'm fascinated by other cultures. I think that goes back to why I love writing great briefs and getting great work out of agencies. Um, I spent a lot of time in Brazil. It's a culture that I'm fascinated with, um, Australia, the UK, Poland, Russia. And, um, and so I would go to these meetings with the marketing teams down there and I would say, well, maybe we should do this and we can invest in a partnership and do that. And and then, you know, next week I'd have a proposal and I'd say, why, wait, why are we doing this? And it was like, because that's what you said. So um, at National Geographic, I, I disarmed that often and would say, you know, to my leadership team, I'm an expressive thinker. I'm just thinking out loud. Let's sort of talk this out and then decide what we want to do. Yeah. I, I sometimes, I, that's a blind spot of mine as well. And what I, what I found as a, as a strategy was to ideate, but be very clear at the end of the meeting, what are we going to do? Yes. This was just expressing lots of ideas. Yes. But you know, and then just get everyone to talk about, is there anything in here we want to act on? Yeah. Be very deliberate about that. That's what Absolutely. I learned. Absolutely. I think that's that's spot on. And when my uh, my enthusiasm and curiosity gets the best of me, um, I tend to keep rolling and need to remember to hit pause and say exactly that. Did you get your passion for brand purpose at MasterCard? I mean, you talked about it so beautifully with National Geographic. MasterCard's done amazing work on purpose. We had Raja Rajamanar yes, on the podcast. Yes, I listened to my old boss and another great mentor. Wow, yeah. yeah, yeah. So did, is that where you sort of got the passion for how a brand can make a difference in the lives of the people it serves? I think so. When Ajay came in, who's one of the world's great CEOs, he really defined this vision around financial inclusion. And prior to that, even with what MasterCard was doing in Priceless, I think I started to see what I had always been seeking as something that was possible with brands. As a human, I had a very seminal moment when I was 18. My grandfather was Croatian. We went back to Croatia. And it was communist at the time. We were in this island. It's now a beautiful tourist island. But we went to a house where my cousins lived. They had the same last name as me. And they lived in a two-room cinder block house with an outhouse. And I can remember looking at them and saying, wow, I have to do something that has meaning in my life. These people took a lot of risk, and I owe it back to them. And I was seeking that. And as as MasterCard leaned into this idea of financial inclusion, it was those memories of thinking about people who are outside of that that just connected with me as a human, and I was just all in. And it's part of what makes me really ambitious about what opportunities lie ahead at, at PayPal as part of their vision. So, yeah, I think MasterCard helped me understand what was possible as far as brands doing good. So their purpose really is financial inclusion. And one way they bring that to life is the whole priceless experiences, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's just such creativity behind that. And Raja talked about that very yeah. beautifully. Do you have a favorite priceless experience story? Oh my gosh. I feel incredibly lucky because I was working for Raja running Priceless Cities, which was the um, the global marketplace of experiences. And so- uh, yeah, I mean, we. I, it's hard. I got to go to Bali to launch Priceless Bali. That was that was pretty not exciting. Bad. You're going to have a business trip. That's not bad. Yeah, but my favorite was um, we had Priceless Rio, and I again, I think I am a, um, a Rio native. called the Carioca. I think I'm a Carioca at heart. I must have been a Brazilian in another life. And we had an experience where you could march in a samba school during Carnival, 
And we had offered this experience to one of our clients who was a CEO of a bank and his wife, who was a retired ballerina from um, Russia, the Bolshoi. And um, she didn't want to do it. And so- So you were the fill-in? Yes, I got to fill in and I got to march in. I got to march in one of the official Samba schools in Rio in Carnival. And um, that is Fabulous. truly an experience that um, money can't buy and unlocks, I think, everything that Priceless stands for. Experiences truly do matter more than things. So you made quite a shift. Yes. About three years ago to National Geographic Partners. So why? And was that a hard transition? It was... A, an exciting transition, but it was a thoughtful one. I loved and continue to love MasterCard as a firm, the leadership, what it does. But I had been there for 23 years, and I felt that I was at a point where I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to see if I could thrive in another environment and continue to contribute, and I really wanted to learn another category. I thought at that point in my career that was really important. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to continue on this journey of understanding how digital platforms could serve to create better connections with audiences and consumers to deliver results. And when Nat Geo called, again, to that memory of the, the magazines being on the shelf and the um, real affinity I had for that brand, it seemed like the right opportunity. It was an ambitious agenda. It was this joint venture between 21st Century Fox and the nonprofit National Geographic Society. They really wanted to bring all of the assets together to create a more meaningful um, uh, customer experience, which is the work that I was really passionate about. So I... Um, so it was a new job, really. It was a new job. It yeah. Had, yeah, newly been created. It was a new chief marketing and ultimately communications office, officer for all of National Geographic's um, consumer assets, television, the magazine, um, everything that they do in consumer products, et cetera. So it was great. I want you to talk about, go back to when you started at National Geographic Partners. What did you do first? How did you onboard? And you're now onboarding to PayPal. Yeah. So I want you to talk about what are the lessons you've learned about onboarding into two very, very different organizations. I mean, what do you do? How do you start? Do you listen? Do you do a listening, listening. tour? Do you yeah. get to meet people? I mean, what what's your what are your rituals when you onboard? Yeah, it's a lot of listening. I think I think one of my superpowers is being able to connect with people. I think I did that really well in global roles at MasterCard. I was able to go out, listen, be empathetic, understand. And so I was conscious of doing that when I joined National Geographic, which was really getting the context because it's a complicated environment. So you can appreciate joint ventures are a coming together of different cultures. Uh, people had been through a lot in sort of understanding what was the strategic direction. Why were they now? People who had worked for a nonprofit were now working for the Murdochs and part of the Fox family. And so it was bringing a lot of that empathy to sort of understand the emotional journey that people had been on as part of this joint venture and the evolution of the company, and also reminding myself that I didn't have all the answers. I was brought there to do some very ambitious things, but that I really needed to understand culture. So you had this joint venture yeah. of a nonprofit and a for-profit media company, 21st Century Fox. Yeah. And your remit was, and you had a big scope, right? You have lots of products and services under your remit, right? Yeah. So what was, what, what was your, uh, what were they expecting of you? Or, they wanted or was, to, they wanted was it to, specific? It was. I mean, I think at the highest level, it was to unlock the power of this brand. I can remember sitting with, you know, very senior executive at Fox who said this brand should be able to unlock 
value emotionally and financially for consumers like the Olympic rings do. And we're not there. And so it was about building, you know, doing those those foundational pieces of work, creating the building blocks, understanding who is that audience, who cares about that, um, really looking at how do you build um, an emotional connection? How do you partner with the likes of P&G? We did some great work with Mark um, while we were there. So with Mark um, Pritchard with, yeah. Yeah, yeah Mark yeah. Pritchard at P&G. So yeah. uh, anyway, so it was about really um, listening and, and understanding the context. I, I will say, uh, after being at MasterCard and working all around the world, I felt like I understood culture and context and I just get it. And I didn't. I mean, it was just a real constant reminder to 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 listen, to be empathetic, to understand and appreciate and respect, really respect the environment that I was going into. What was your work when you started? I mean, you onboarded, you got to know people. Yeah. But what is the work of the CMO of this partnership? I mean, was it building revenue? Was it understanding consumers? Was it new it was it innovation? So what kind of what Yeah. It was all of that. Part of it was building culture. So marketing had always been a, dis- a discrete function as part of a business line. And now they were taking all of the marketers and putting them together in one organization. So it was combining, I think, kind of five or six different teams. So a lot of it was around trying to create culture, establishing values for what it meant to be a great marketer. So the, the importance of taking risk, um, of being resilient. Of, of sharing. There wasn't a lot of, you know, we talked a lot at MasterCard about stealing shamelessly. There wasn't a lot of sharing and collaborating that was going on. So building culture was a big part of it and rewarding those good behaviors. But then there was just a lot of work. Yeah, there was a global segmentation that had to be done. There was a lot of collaboration with the revenue team. We were a support function to revenue. There were, you know, looking at ways to unlock more value through this incredible digital reach that National Geographic had. And there was driving tune-in for, for television. I learned a whole new world of what it takes to make a great trailer and how do you assess a piece of key art. I didn't know that that's what a poster for a television show was even called when I joined. So um, it was, you know, there was a lot of, there was lots of different kinds of work, but it was really around empowering at a big team. You know, there were different teams doing data insights, data science, um, the work of, you know, a creative hub that made all of the, the posters, the key art. So it was also about empowering a team um, around sort of this common brand vision and, and setting them free with the foundation of culture that we were building. What are you most proud of in your three years at Nat Geo? Well, there was a moment that um, I was reflecting on the other day. The most proud moment at National Geographic was the moment when National Geographic won the Academy Award for Free Solo. And I didn't expect that to be my most proud moment. We were all in L.A. Anyone who worked on the project for marketing, we, we brought to L.A. and we were at a viewing party. And I was surrounded by all these people who had worked so hard and had embraced those values, taking risks, doing really bold PR, doing things in a different way. And when it was announced, I found myself crying, tears of joy. But it wasn't it was, it was because it was something so much bigger, because I was looking at all these people that had worked so hard, and it was realizing the role that marketing played in that. I mean, that was a win for National Geographic. It kind of solidified that content strategy. It really put them on the map. Um, the, the woman who made that bold decision, Courtney Monroe, who runs, runs the global network, um, had poured her heart and soul into that. You know, Alex Honnold, the, the climber, his personal story, um, Jimmy Chin and his wife, Chai, who were the filmmakers, 
I just was so overwhelmed at, wow, this team of people who had come so far and worked so hard were, um, were able to celebrate in, in their role. And so it was just sort of seeing what, what's possible. It was a moment of seeing what's possible. Was that the first Academy Award ever for National Geographic? It it was in in this model, in this, um, yeah. yeah. I think I think there was some. Uh, I think March of the Penguins, which mm. they were affiliated with, but didn't produce um, in the same way. Received it is a remarkable award. film. Oh, I watched on. it on an airplane. I was so nervous. <laughs> I mean, and, I th- and and actually having the filmmakers speak to you about how they felt about this. Yeah, that they could be filming someone dying. Yeah, I, I think that film represents all the best things about National Geographic, kind of a relentless curiosity, a spirit of never being satisfied, and about taking bold risks. But yes, I've seen it, I think, 10 times. I brought my daughter to the Toronto Film Festival last year where she met Alex Honnold in the green room before the screening. And as she was watching it, she was squeezing my hand. She was dripping with sweat. And I said, <laughs> he's right next to you. <laughs> you know he lives. But it's, it's Still, very, right? yes, yeah, spoiler alert, yeah. But it's a, it's an incredible story, and he's a really incredible person. So what what's the worst day you've had at National Geographic? Well, that's an interesting question. And as I've been in this state of transition, uh, one of the things I did was transition from to transition PayPal. from yeah. National Geographic mm-hmm. and sort of stepping back and being real thought really thoughtful about what was next was um, uh, was actually hired a coach, and so we we talked through a lot of these worst moments. And I would say, without calling out the the specific elements, what I realized was that as CMO and in my career, the worst moments are when my personal values are at odds with something that I'm working on. And as marketers, we're... I think we we come to what we do with such passion and belief for what we're selling, what we're trying to promote. And there were just a couple of really, you know, crushing moments where I felt like what I believed and and what my personal values were around the ambition of the work were um were feeling challenged and then my optimism kicks in and then I start to wish I start to wish things um, even though all the signs and signals are telling me um, that I need to need to change course, um, and so I'm, I, I think that's been a big part of um, reflection and help. So did you hire a coach before you decided to leave National Geographic, or after you left? After, but I had um, I'd worked with coaches. I you know Mastercard. I'm biased towards the importance of that feedback because Mastercard invested in their leadership team. I had a great coach there, and I have two really good friends who have coached me kind of on and off through my career. But I went all in into, um, you know, signing a proper agreement with a coach the, the day I left National Geographic. So what did you learn about yourself in your coaching time getting ready for PayPal? Well, I learned- I did the same when I left P&G, by the way. So I, I'm familiar with the process. It's very, very good and very reflective. It's very reflective. So what did you learn most? Well, I think that the first uh, thing was to be gentle on myself and to continue to hold what was true to me, which was incredible gratitude for the things that I had done and the career that I had served and to not let um, doubt or fear of the unknown sort of get in the way of that. But the really great work was distilling what the future looked like and leaning into things like my personal values and 
seeking an environment where I could thrive. And so it was really, um, you know, as a marketer, you know, we kind of joke about it and my coach and I, and it's like we created an algorithm of the things where Jill as a human, Jill as a leader, Jill as a marketer could really thrive and contribute in the world. And that was a great filter by which to assess opportunities that started to present themselves to me. So you did this uh, remarkable uh, reflection with the coach and you came out with PayPal. Yeah. Which has certainly some connections to MasterCard. Yes. So why did you make this choice? Yeah. Why PayPal versus an ad agency or another media company or yeah. Disney? I mean, just what? Yeah. What, why did you come out? You, in a way, you go back to your roots, but with a different yeah. company and culture. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I I wanted to learn a new category after 23 years in financial services and payment payments. Um, it was a category that I continued to follow. So PayPal was a company that I have been following. I I became really inspired by the company that Dan Shulman was building and Dan Shulman as a leader. So I started to follow him. And it was interesting. I didn't identify PayPal out of the box as a company that I would want to work for. I mean, I thought about what would it be like to go back to MasterCard, like a company that I love. So what I started to do was look at the things that mattered. And I felt that where I thrived was in a true global company, sort of using that superpower of being able to connect with people all over the world. And what that does for me as I think about creative challenges, which is to be surrounded by diversity of thinking. So I really wanted a global job. I wanted a job that would have me interacting with people all around the world and solving problems that mattered to consumers all around the world so I could create real consumer value um, with a big brand. So that was one. And this idea of working for a brand that was uh, doing real good in the world, even if it wasn't their core business, and I think certainly PayPal has a vision around that. And I really wanted to get back to a company that had very strong commercial orientation and where I could play a role and have more P&L kind of responsibility because I think that really matters. And I wanted to build culture. And so PayPal came up. And it wasn't necessarily the job that I'm joining. Um, but when a recruiter called me, I thought, oh, my gosh, it, it checks all my boxes. And I've been following Dan and following this company. So I went all in and, uh, and chased it. I called Ajay Banga, the CEO of MasterCard, as I was going through this. And he gave me some really sage advice and said, take time and think about what you want and then chase it as hard as you can. And so when I you know, realized that PayPal was answering all of those things that mattered to me, I went all in and, and chased it and couldn't be more thrilled to be embarking on what I hope is a, uh, another long chapter of my career. So you're changing cities too, right? Well, I, I think I was pretty much living in, in the world when I was at National Geographic. I had an apartment in D.C. We still maintained our home here in Westchester County, which was you know designed to be 10 minutes from MasterCard. And I was in L.A., an inordinate amount last year because I was working on the Disney integration. So I get to kind of reroute here in New York. The, the, there's a, you know, a large office that PayPal has in the village um, as well as in San Jose. And then I will have teams in the UK, Canada, Australia, across continental Europe. So it'll involve a lot of travel, which I also like. So how were you on board at PayPal? You're in the early days of it now. Yeah. So I What's your strategy I going in? I haven't officially joined, but I'm doing you know, some of the same things. I'm, re I'm trying to enjoy the last few weeks of this gardening leave that I took and to be really present and mindful, but I can't help myself from, from reading. I listened in on their earnings call yesterday and I'm learning and reading and consuming everything I can about the people that I'll be working with and about what they're doing in the world. And then I'm going to do, you know, something similar. I'm going to 
really try to listen. I'm going to try to lean into my weak spots. It's similar to to what I know and that it's in the financial services category, but the model's different. I'm going to be playing in a true direct-to-consumer model through things like PayPal and Venmo. So um, really thinking about that. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of listening and a lot of um, meeting people. I think, you know, I truly believe that when we know each other as humans, um, we can work better together. And so I believe in the importance of getting to know, you know, people first and then figuring out how we can best align around some very bold, ambitious objectives that they have and I'm thrilled to be a part of. What's the most important lesson you learned at National Geographic you will apply at PayPal? Patience. I think to really be um, to be patient with my with myself and understanding new cultures and how things are done, and and patience in respecting um, legacies uh, as far as how um, how how companies operate. So we've talked a bit about brand purpose. Yeah, I want to talk a bit deeper about that. And National Geographic is one of the most purpose driven organizations in the world. Yeah. Going back to its origin with bugs. Yeah. And impact on the planet and studying. Has that purpose at all shifted? And maybe it hasn't. And how do you keep it alive with all the partners and employees and people who come in touch with that brand? What what has been your learning on that? That's a great question. I think it goes back to the articulation of that North Star for the brand. And so as the brand seeks to cover lots of different topics, the question was, is it helping us to really understand the world, the planet around us so that we can do something with it? And so I think at times it's been, as I look back, I think at times it has, the, it has broadened and then at times it has become more narrow. What's interesting now is that so many brands realize that they have to find their purpose. And so in the role of being the chief marketing officer at National Geographic, I participated in a lot of conversations with other brands who were trying to find their purpose and finding ways to partner with National Geographic. And that was an interesting process for us to establish guardrails for how far we could go. Who would we work with as we tried to tackle something? One of the, one of, another really proud campaign platform that we established a platform that I'm proud of that we established was the Planet or Plastic platform, which was really built around an incredible story that the that the editor in chief was was working on around uncovering sort of the real challenges of plastic and what it does to marine life, and using the brilliant editorial content to create a an ongoing platform for dialogue and education around this. So when you start talking about things like single use plastic and the impact that it has on the environment, you get a lot of companies that are in the plastic space wanting to have conversations about how they can leverage the equity. And you have to sort of really suss out, are they actually doing good? Are they going to change their practices? So, um, you know, I think it always comes back to, for National Geographic, the elements of the planet, you know, the the land, um, the earth and the sky and what they're doing to protect it and really, you know, being being true to that. How does National Geographic measure that, their impact on, on the world through their purpose? Do you have any insights for others who are trying to measure brand purpose? You know, I think that one of the things that we implemented that we had not been doing was, um, we hadn't been doing it regularly anyway, was net pro- you know, a lot of research, including net promoter score. 
and really getting a sense of does our audience feel um, so net promoter score is a measure oh, yes. of, of how if, if customers recommend you to someone else, basically. That's right. Um, sort of, you know, yeah, looking at your promoters versus your detractors and seeing, you know, do, do consumers think you're on course? And it was through very specific um, work on that around different pieces of work that we were doing where we started to see that our purpose and that ambition was starting to ring true, at least with the consumer audience. And so, you know, that was that was one way that we measured it. I mean, the other was in in partnerships, right? Could we monetize some of those platforms, and how successful were we? So, I would like to close this podcast with uh, what I call sort of leadership rambles. So, it's okay. a series of interesting, fun, helpful questions and issues. Okay, so a lot like National Geographic, right? We're going to be interesting, fun, and helpful. Yeah. And so, this is just a wide range of questions. So, we'll spend the last ten minutes or so on this. So your favorite National Geographic show? Genius. The first season which celebrated um, the, the incredible life of Albert Einstein. How do you stay fresh and creative? I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm, I love creative expression. I was a aspiring actress as a child. I did children's theater, so I love living in New York. We go to theater regularly, and my husband knows all the hacks to get great tickets. So we're out and about in culture a lot. We spend a lot. We love to explore you know, new restaurants and, and culture, so I think experiencing culture firsthand keeps me creative. As a family, we lived in Europe for four years, and we spent all of our discretionary time and money traveling my daughter's been to, I think, like 50 countries. I'm obsessed. When I get to a new country, the first thing I do is go to a grocery store. I love to see how um, consumers interact with with products so you and placement. Been, you would have been great at PNG. I would have been great. I know when I worked in a deli when I was 17, and I didn't realize now, but I fully understood, um, you know, the the four Ps, and I didn't even realize that that was what was happening. Uh, and then I think the other thing is I try to I try to uh, take care of myself so that I can be creative. I'm fairly addicted to SoulCycle. I get up mm, four out of five mornings and make sure I tap it back and sort of so have time to early, reflect. How early is your class? It depends. I'll hit a couple of 6 a.m.s. In D.C., they had 7 a.m.s. Up in Westchester County, they don't have 7 a.m.s because it's not good for all the commuters. The commuters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what's the best show you've seen lately? I just binged Fleabag. Lovely. She's um, mm-hmm. Phoebe Waller yeah. is yeah. amazing. I'm in season two. You're in season two? Yeah. Okay, yeah. We, we just couldn't stop watching that. And then we wrapped up The Politician, uh, which was fantastic and overdone and amazing. And I can't wait for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to come back. It's coming soon. Yeah. Yeah. So is Ozark, which I can't wait oh for. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Another great Ozark. one. I know. Jason Bateman. So they're also, it's so great. Great show. So do you read books? I do. Yeah. I, I try to toggle between um, just kind of uh, something that is a guilty pleasure and something that helps me learn. So I just finished Quiet, which was, which is a um, more of a, uh, an educational book on understanding introverts mm-hmm. and the value that they bring to the world as someone who's highly extroverted. I wish I would have read it yeah. a long time ago. Susan Cain, I think, is the author. Susan Cain, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yes. I spoke at TED the year she spoke at TED. She made quite an impact. Oh, it's amazing. And I think, you know, the world has been designed for people like me who are extroverted. And I think that educators and leaders should all have to read quiet. And then my guilty pleasure was Daisy Jones and the Six, which was, I tore through that in about a day. The most influential person in your life? 
I think that would be my grandfather, the one who we took back to Croatia. He was, he had an incredible love of life. He taught us to live life well. He kind of danced as if no one was looking. He loved to have a great time. And he really taught me the importance of a good and strong work ethic. Describe your perfect day. My perfect day is spending time with the people that I love most and that give me a lot of joy. We're probably sitting outside at a table with lots of um, uh, food, kind of, you know, some baguettes, some cheese, and a lovely bottle of wine, and just talking about what, what matters in life and having a good time. You were the first brand at Nat Geo to hit 100 million Instagram followers. So what's the most surprising lesson or thing you learned along that way? And what's the next milestone once you hit that? I mean, what's the next goal? Yeah, I know there was, that was the big I mean, question. That's a record, right? There's no brand that has. Yeah, no, no. I mean, even, that. yeah, I mean, you know, brands like Nike, um, ESPN, you know, Trail in, in comparison, and those brands have a lot of affection. And so that was the big question is, are we going for 110? Are we going for 120? And I think, you know, there was a moment of let's step back and pause and say, to what, to what end? Mm-hmm. Right. How do we continue to this delight important? this audience? Um, how, do we, how do we use the equity that we have with this audience to give them more value and to give National Geographic more value? But again, I think it goes back to what we talked about, which is there's a real lesson there and that it is a brand that I think is still treating that social platform as a social platform. It's really about it's about engagement. You know, it's not, I've just talked to so many companies as I've been going through this transition who are looking for CMOs. And what they're really looking for is a head of performance marketing and using those channels to drive conversion. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think the incredible success that National Geographic has, has been a result of being authentic to itself and caring deeply about how it serves great content to the people that love the brand. This uh, tension between performance marketing, and I hate to use a buzzword, but brand marketing. Yeah. You know, I hear it all the time. How do you handle that? I mean, you're going to walk into PayPal, right? Where there's probably also going to be that tension. So what's your lesson on that? I mean, how do you, do you keep them as separate groups? Do you bring them together? I mean, how do you do the mix of performance versus more brand building, marketing? I think the reality from- is is that one can't live without the other, and I think we've seen it with a lot of these direct-to-consumer companies who have come sh- shot out of the gates with tremendous results, but then when they look to grow to the next level, they're not able to attract an aspirational audience because the consumer isn't sure of what they stand for. And so I think, you know, as a CMO, you know, there's this term, the hourglass marketer, and I think we very much have to operate in that environment where we can pivot from what is the importance of building a brand and a brand narrative while also ensuring that you can, you know, shift the, the hourglass and, and focus on delivering the results. But I think, you know, more often than not, short term tends to take the, uh, the primary focus. And I think it's around, you know, sort of some, at Natchio, it was, a, it was around really demonstrating that articulation of the brand value proposition was helping achieve our performance marketing objectives. You know, we were able to bring in younger subscribers into the magazine. And so really leaning into how do those two things showing and and getting belief that they work together. What's, uh, you know, if you were recommending to a CMO how to think about this, 
what, what would you tell them to do? I mean, what sorts of things would you look at their KPIs, look at the work their people are doing? Yeah, definitely. I think first of all, you know, ensuring that they have KPIs for sure. One of the interesting experiences I had as I've talked to several companies in the last few months was a lack of KPIs and really not understanding. For short and long term. For short and long term. What are you trying to, to achieve? I mean, I love the saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And so I think being really clear about what success looks like. And I just take great solace. I mean, we we look at some of the work that you've championed around understanding brands and their performance around things like net promoter score and what that does to deliver value. So when we were selling in some of this work at National Geographic, we did case studies on great brands like Nike and Disney and how a real passion for what a brand stands for has actually contributed to financial performance, Amazon, over the long term. So I think for other CMOs, one of the most effective things to do is to actually take an outside-in look and take your brand out of it and look at other brands in a category, aspirational brands, and get the data that shows that when they invested, when there was a pivot in in looking at how their brand was received in the world, they were able to achieve those KPIs. So get out of your office, get out of your category, yes, look around. Yes, look yeah. around. Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous lesson. We hear that from other other great leaders in this podcast. In fact, Diego Scotti at Verizon oh, talked about Diego. the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So two last questions. What are you really looking forward to at PayPal? got huge momentum and huge opportunity. So, you know, marketing has a new seat at the table. They've hired Allison Johnson as the CMO. I'm really looking forward to working with her and the leadership team uh, to understand what that vision looks like. I'm really looking forward to getting back into some of these markets and getting closer to the consumer. Money really matters to people. PayPal is another brand. It's, you know, one of the, it's the most trusted brand, depending on where you are in the ca- in the world in that category. Uh, so I'm looking forward to working with great people. I'm looking forward to really leaning into their their vision and strategy and building culture and, and delivering results, getting more people to use PayPal and Venmo more often um, and figuring out what does the brand need to do to make that happen. Well, they're fortunate to have you join them. And I wish you well. And I have one last question. Who else should we have on the CMO podcast? Who would you like to listen to? I think Allison Johnson could be interesting. Seth Farbman could be um, a, a great one to have. And in the entertainment category, someone who I learned a lot from is Joe Early. He was the CMO at Fox, and he's now the CMO at Disney+. And I think we all have a lot to learn from what's happening in the content and the streaming category. And Joe is a visionary and a true delight. We should get Joe on because it's a really interesting time yeah. at Disney+. Plus. Verizon's offering it. Yeah. For a year free. Yes, free. Yeah. They're offering the bundle of ESPN Plus, Hulu, and Disney for like $12 a month. It's I a, mean, they're going to make an impact. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jill. It's been terrific. Very inspiring. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Jill Cress. What I loved about this one was how she talked about the importance of a coach. She's had a coach throughout her career, and when she left National Geographic and before she started with PayPal, she really went deep with her coach to really figure out where she wants to go with her life. There's so much to learn in this podcast about the importance of mentors and the importance of coaches. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.